Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And Tara's discussing the film, Look Who's Back. And joining us today is our special guest, David Sokoler. So welcome, David. Hey, Thanks David. for joining us. Hey, guys. Pleasure yeah. to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We're very excited to talk to you, David. So can you get us started by telling us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment world? Happy to. So I am currently senior footage producer at The Problem with Jon Stewart on Apple TV+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Apple overlords. <laughs> and I am in charge of a team that does archival footage research that provides the little pop and illustration, typically in the montage portion of the show, um, but also can kind of sometimes assist in background information when we're prepping uh, for interviews with public officials or whoever it might be. But the main focus of what we do is when we have a topic, we are digging into all forms of video video media to see what's out there and to try to figure out how are we going to work with the writers to kind of begin our little back and forth creative process to give them the materials they need to write a very compelling narrative uh, that uses video as illustration, as punchlines, uh, and as kind of bits throughout uh, the monologue. Cool. So where do you go for that footage? Like, what are some of the sources you use? So there's a whole bunch that are just generally available to the public. There's archive.org, which is a fantastic uh, open source that provides materials recorded back and since 2009, major cable news, as well as some local affiliates. Uh, There's also, you can always go to YouTube, um, depending on the topic you're doing. If we're doing a story that involves a particular company or an organization, you can go down a rabbit hole on their YouTube channels. And then there are some other tools that we have that are behind paywalls or things that we have specific to us. There are some uh, archival resources that we can reach out to if we're looking for something specific. And then we have a product called Snapstream. Snapstream, if you're listening, my t-shirt is a size medium. (laughs) (laughs) Snapstream is really cool. And actually, Part of what I love about what I'm getting to do currently and getting to work with Jon Stewart is that a lot of this stuff, and I'm not going to attribute it directly to The Daily Show, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the stuff and I think some of the mechanics behind things like Snapstream started back in the day with Jon Stewart and some video producer, footage producers, figuring out like the news is happening all day. How do we capture it? So Mm -hmm. back then they started with just... As, as the lore goes, uh, just a couple TiVos. They just had a handful of TiVos oh, nice. and they were just <laughs> recording the news. And that was a big upgrade from the yeah. news wires or VHS. So TiVo was a big leap forward. Right. And now we have uh, the ability to do something way more powerful, which is called Snapstream, which is basically a heavy duty DVR where we can be recording multiple channels simultaneously Wow. Uh, and it auto-populates closed captioning, so we can have searchable. Oh, nice. We can have searchable content. That's mm-hmm. cool. So it's kind of we have a mix of a whole bunch of different sources, and those are only a few of them. We have other okay. sources that we use. Uh, there's like if you want to go old school, there's uh, Vanderbilt University has an amazing TV archive. Uh, so nice. if you want to be pulling material from the '60s, 
yeah, we can we can go all the way back there. Um, sometimes you might you reach out to a documentary filmmaker and you're able to work out an agreement to license some of their original material. So it right. can kind of be far and wide, but the the bread wow. and butter is really the news material, which is archive, Snapstream, YouTube, kind of in that space. Nice. Can you tell us a bit about the process? Like, all right, so who gives you what the topic to research? And then once you're done with the research, who do you hand it off to? Is it the writers? It's interesting. So every show does things a little bit differently. Okay. And I think that's part of the challenge of all of these different shows is trying to um, approach everything with the understanding of people know how to make the best possible content, but then adapting those processes to kind of fit the show that you're working on. So with broad strokes, the way it kind of works is, you know, a story will be approved by show leadership. You know, we're not going to do a story that John right. you know, doesn't <laughs> doesn't want to do or it doesn't feel as compelling or he isn't passionate about. So that's kind of when 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 he gives the the green light, then it's time to jump in. And at the early stages, we'll have a little bit of direction from both him and from the head writer, Chris Achimovich, uh, about kind of spaces that they are initially interested in. And that gives us a little bit of a lens because a lot of these are big worlds that you're going to be diving yeah. into. So then my team, I have two producers, Amy and Margot, who are amazing archival producers. They'll start looking. And when they're looking in these more narrow verticals, what they're looking for are things that will directly support the the request, but then also what patterns, what observations, what hmm. like outlier things do they come across that you can start envisioning as both supporting the mission of the the topic that we're driving, but can also be the thing that maybe we're able to laugh off of, or can also yeah. be the repetitive behavior that is representative of a larger issue. So, you know, if you go back, just for an example, if you go back and you look at, at the end of season one, we did a critique on media and how they call it, covered the Mueller report. I know, John Stewart media critique. It's a, it's a <laughs> shocker. shocker, I know. I know. <laughs> and Amy kind of found that one of the phrases, they were saying, what if, all the time, what if? Yeah. And we really latched onto that. Like, what if is a ridiculous thing to say when yeah. you're reporting on the news? That is right. not news. That is right. imagination, <laughs> which right. is which is interesting yet different. So, mm -hmm. you know, so maybe the prompt would have been start looking for some of the behaviors that show uncertainty within how news is reporting on the Mueller report. And then uh, a producer might raise a flag and be like, well, what if is really what they use a lot? Like, let's 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 see if we can make a meal out of that. And that's kind of how we'll start and then we'll narrow in and we'll pick up and on different patterns, behaviors and and try to build those out. And then obviously we have to come back because the writers are building a narrative. They're building an argument yeah. and our work then has to fit into what they're doing. And then we kind of enter a little bit of a quicker back and forth process where it's a little bit more of their structuring what we what work we've done gets slotted in or gets broken and present presented how they want it and then it's a little bit like need it got it they're like all right well this beats great but we're looking for someone who does something like this what do you got and we can bring them uh, some options and they can slot it in and and that's where it gets a little bit more of a speedy back and forth all the way up to show day great so 
Can you tell us more about your background and your path and how you got to this career? Sure. In college, I studied political science and I interned in politics. And that was kind of what I did while I was in school. And then when I graduated, I was working on a writing project with someone I had met in college who had been an interpreter for the U.S. military in Iraq. Uh, He was born in Iraq, raised in Iraq, and and, uh, joined the military while he was still living there. And so we had this grand plan to, as, you know, recent college graduates to to sit and write together, but life kind of got in the way for many reasons um, that are more than justifiable on his end. But while uh, I was working on writing, and this is where my story becomes the least helpful to anyone else uh, (laughs) trying to break into television. I was working my summer job of 10 years selling vegetables on Cape Cod and Meredith Vieira came in and (laughs) I took a swing and I introduced myself and she is the most lovely, gracious, giving and, and wonderful person in the industry. And she gave me her email address. I sent her what I was writing and she passed along to a book agent who wrote me my first incredibly humbling email uh, that, uh, you know, of, of some, some tough love and critique, uh, which, which is fine. It was much appreciated. Uh, Mm -hmm. But so that developed a connection with her. So then I, I moved to New York city. I worked at REI, worked at a restaurant, and then she got a television show and I reached back out and I asked if I could interview. So then I was a production assistant on the Meredith Vieira show, moved over to last week tonight, where I started as just a transcriber, um, quite literally transcribing every piece of video material that they would consider using hundreds and hundreds of pages. Wow. Uh, oh, so like, like 10 hours a day of typing oh my God. Uh, at last week tonight, I kind of refer to it as my comedic J school experience where I went mm-hmm. from that to research assistant to associate producer and got to work and learn from an amazing team of talented footage producers and research producers, uh, just truly amazing, smart people. And from there, I went as a research producer to Michelle Wolf, uh, the break with Michelle Wolf, yeah. yep. then to footage producer uh, at Hassan Minaj, and then COVID. So things yeah. got weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I worked on a, a small project at BET and then oh. John Stewart. Nice. Great. Wow. <laughs> so, That's quite a resume. It's yeah. long. It's long. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so is, so, so is life in this industry, I think. Yeah, oh, for right. Sure. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have been very lucky. So, oh, that's awesome, though. And going back, like, yeah, working at a vegetable stand and meeting Meredith Vieira, obviously not the typical how you made it story, but really good evidence to show, like, it's good to be ready because you never know when an opportunity is going to pop up, right? So, going back, you did work in politics, literally in politics. So, what made you want to get more into the political, like, satire late night world rather than stick with working, like, in Congress or something? The year that kind of shaped it for me as I I actually left school in the middle and took a year off and worked as an aide for a Boston city councilor. So I was okay. his like body man and I was his oh, aide yeah. and I was traveling around the city of Boston with him for a year, uh, which was an amazing experience. Like truly, uh, it's amazing how many of the lessons I learned and the, the issues I was exposed to during that one year are things that persist and continue yeah. to inform how I think about the world and the topics that I care about today. So it was a, a truly, truly valuable year. Mm-hmm. But I think what I realized out of it that I was more interested in the stories yeah. of it than I was in the politics of it. Mm-hmm. And so 
that was kind of clarifying. And so yeah. then I was, you know, there's kind of different paths you can choose from there. You can choose to do journalism, you can choose mm-hmm. comedy. And as a wise ass, it seemed more logical to try to go <laughs> that that route. And, right. uh, you know, and also it just kind of timed out, right? Like it was at the time where Last Week Tonight was just starting. Um, yeah. And kind of this genre was getting another round of inspiration mm-hmm. after John had left The Daily Show. So I think it was just kind of, uh, timing and and it yeah. worked out nice very cool so you've had a, a bunch of different positions in a, a relatively short amount of time how do you move up so quickly in the television world yeah so this is a really it's a tough question and it's a it's yeah. a question that I have received in a conversation I have with my more junior members of my team I have you know four associate producers on my team and then there's also a whole bunch of production assistants I think your priority is always the project that you're on, but no one should ever fault you for looking for the next thing. And any yeah. good manager, any good supervisor will always celebrate you getting a new opportunity. And sometimes I think what's hard about this industry is that there are not many stable positions. Yeah. There aren't many shows that you really feel confident or comfortable that are going to go on for many years. And when you do find yourself on that, that thing, it's easy to, to stay. And that is a wonderful and totally valid decision for a lot of people. If your goal is to try to move up, then you got to, when you hit your ceiling, you got to move out and just look yeah. for new opportunities. Because as I think I would imagine folks that you speak to, it's 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 a network. It's about doing good work. It's about doing good work for a lot of different people. And it's about being you know willing to go try new things and take some risks. And I realize that, uh, you know, I say that from a position of, you know, an amount of privilege where I'm able to take those risks. So I understand that that is not something everyone can do. Um, but that's kind of what I've seen in my experience has been in the industry. Okay, Great. How do you work with writers room? Fantastic team of writers and yeah. their job, especially, and I'll focus really just in on the monologue, because that's where mm-hmm. most of this, this takes place. There are mm-hmm. other, you know, bits and spurts throughout the show. But really, what it comes down to is the writer's they own the argument, right? They're in charge of making sure that what gets curated down and what makes it into the script is in service of the best possible argument that we are trying to pursue that excites John, that is compelling, that does all of those things. So it's a little bit of a dance back and forth between, hey, you know, look at this, we found this, and them sometimes just going like, yup, slotting it right into a script. It never gets touched. Uh, everyone's happy and the sun is shining. And then sometimes, you know, you, you, you put something out to them and they're like, that's close, but these parts of it don't quite get at the core of what we're trying to say. It's a little bit of a step to the left or the right. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where we go back and forth. It's like, okay, okay, well, there's a few things we can do. One, can we make some trims? Can we curate the material a little bit differently so that we're just focusing it on your argument? Or do we then need to go and look for different material uh, and to kind of pitch you back another concept or another idea? And that kind of process will go back and forth for a little while. And then it kind of is on them to, to come up with the final curation. So you know, maybe we give them three or four clips that we can place together in a montage, but they have an idea that, well, it would actually be funnier if this clip interrupts John mid-sentence. So they're going to kind of start doing that tweaks 
those tweaks and that curation to try to then take the material and break it out to be the most presentable and the most compelling. And hmm. again, that like can be a little bit of a back and forth, a little bit of a thing. I guess this is a little dark humor, but one of the writers discovered we were we did an episode on gun control, which is no laughing mm -hmm. matter, but right. they were trying to kind of step out, you know, like it's not the gun, it's the man. Yeah. Okay. Well, but then like we found videos of women shooting people. So it's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, it's not the woman either. It's like, what else is it? And someone found a story about a dog shooting their owner. <laughs> sure. And so I take a quick pass and I'm like, oh, there's actually like bunch of examples of these so then the writer's like great so we're gonna we're gonna step it out we're gonna turn this into like a three or four beat thing and mm -hmm. that's kind of how just a small nugget of an idea can kind of broaden out and become half a page of content yeah interesting so when you're working on stories and looking for archival footage what what are the kinds of things that catch your eye uh so the way i kind of think about footage very simply is that it should never be neutral Right. Yeah. If it's going to be neutral, John, like people would rather see John Oliver, John Stewart, Michelle yeah. Wolf, Hassan Minhaj, like say it. Right. So yeah. what we're looking for is, is it emotionally high? Is it emotionally low? We can go either direction, but we should always be going one of those directions, mm -hmm. never flat. So when you start looking at footage with that kind of eye, you start looking for what are the energetic moments. So okay. oftentimes you're looking for, you know, we've had to do a, a bunch of montages this season about, you know, the the fear of the crime waves across the country. Mm -hmm. Fox does a fantastic intro to all of their segments with music and graphics and whatever. That's a high energy moment. Like we might be yeah. able to do something with that. Sometimes it just lands itself. Uh, Margot, uh, producer, the other day found a clip of he was, I believe I'm going to mess this up, but the former CIA director, I believe, making a num 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 sound when oh. uh, being asked about whether or not the United States interferes in foreign governments. Like, yeah, that does something for us. Yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> so those are kind of the obvious ones. But okay. then kind of as I was, uh, what I was talking about earlier is yeah. you were looking for, because we're generally like one-offs are great because yeah. they are true. They are true moments. But if we can show you and really demonstrate for you how truthful the argument we're making is with repetition mm -hmm. or with kind of showing a repeated behavior, even if it's not literally repeated, but a general thing that's done over time, then we're really demonstrating a systemic issue and not just a comedic one-off. Yeah. So we're right. often looking for those types of things. And I think those are kind of what the genre is often known for is yeah. being able to kind of point out those insane highs or lows in, of narrative. Yeah. Is there a formula that you guys, you know, try to follow? I mean, I know you work with the writers to really, you know, build out the jokes and all that kind of stuff, but is it sort of like, do you already have an opinion as you're pulling footage or do you, do you just pull the stuff and let the rest of the team handle the, like the spin on it? Well, we often have ideas and mm -hmm. when we have the bandwidth and the ability uh, we'll kind of cut together small samples to show how we would, you know, pitch a pitch a way to present it. Like we'll we'll always take that swing, uh, and we'll sit down with the writers, and we might say like, "Hey, we thought it'd be great if you do this." And it's always an iterative process. So they may say we like part of it, but and then it becomes a back and forth, and kind of builds from there. 
Sure. Uh, so that that's fairly common and or or you know there might be a situation where part of the value of the footage producers and the footage team is we are just hard drives of information in our head right like we have just watched a ton of material so yeah so much when we're in the room we can listen to the conversation and pretty quickly being able to be like oh like i have an idea of how we could do this and there's an example of that the other day for an episode you know we were trying to build out the top of the show and i had remembered seeing a certain clip and in the room i was able to be like guys like what if we did this and people were like yep that works so then we would kind of do that so we can either kind of pitch and present to them but also just being aware of where the argument is going we often can kind of just go back through our notes go back through our transcripts and yeah. present new material for them to take a look at how many hours a day do you spend watching footage? So um, <laughs> when I was just when I was a footage producer, yeah. you know, it's 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 the day. And, yeah. and now it's a little bit less, but I still okay. watch like uh, the team will pull clips and I'll pop into the docs and okay. watch like their select. So before it was a little bit more of I would be sitting and watching it yeah. just start to finish. And now um, I'm kind of popping into the different stories and okay. brainstorming and watching the clips that they've pulled or that they've highlighted that they think are really good and, and having conversations about that. But typically like the footage producers, it, it's all day. It's, yeah. It's, all, it's <laughs> all day business. Yeah. 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 The more you talk about, I was like, wow, that's, that's a lot of news to watch <laughs> yes. or whatever, yeah. like anything to watch. Yes. Yeah, totally. How much time do you guys normally get to do the research to pull everything together and to pass it off? It varies wildly. Um, So, you know, some shows will have a few months of prep. Um, The reality is a lot of it, like that time is really valuable, um, Mm -hmm. but the rubber meets the road generally a couple weeks out. Uh, yeah. But then also we've done a couple episodes where we wanted to be incredibly topical, like our final yeah. uh, episode of season two and our final episode of season one. And those shows were built, you know, day of for the most part mm-hmm. with a little wow. bit of prep, but uh, they were more traditional daily show style yeah. productions. Gotcha. Um, so you have your own company. Hero Stories. Yeah. So do you want to tell us more about that? Sure. This was... Uh, Gosh, four or five years ago, I guess at this point, I had an idea based on playing with my little cousin. Yeah, I was just Mm -hmm. in his basement playing and he was acting out scenes from Star Wars and he wanted me to video record it on my phone and I did it and I showed it to him and he loved it. And for his Jedi themed birthday, I put it in iMovie, gave it some titles, gave it some music, some sound effects, and uh, it was a hit. And then I started to think, you know, that amount of work is a little bit above uh, what the average person is willing to or capable of doing at home on their mm-hmm. computer, although it's getting a little bit easier. So I set out developing a concept, which was to merge reading, movie making, and movie watching into one kind of immersive project. And that's where Hero Stories came from. So it is an iOS app where you sit and you read a short story with your kid typically ages four to eight or so. And as you read the story with your kid, you get to the main moments of the story. For example, Three Little Pigs, where the pigs say not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. You're prompted to record your kid. They're framed inside of the house. They say it, we record it, you move on, you keep reading. And by the time you get to the end of the story, we stitch together all of these moments with an animated track. And you have a short 90 second film that you're able to share 
with whoever you'd like starring your little reader. And uh, I kind of did it for many reasons. It was a little bit of just like a creative challenge for myself. uh, Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had met enough people within the industry that I was able to put together, you know, a team to help me with animation and music and voiceover. And I wanted to kind of just test out my producer chops and and learn more about what it's like to make a story and storytelling device enhanced by technology. And Hmm. so that's what I did. Put it together. Very cool. Again, I was fortunate enough that I had the resources to kind of try to do that kind of thing. But I also have done very stupid things with friends in my basement of my apartment in Brooklyn. Like, we thought it'd be fun. You know, the videos of uh, like, will it blend on YouTube where people just put things in blenders? Well, we discovered that there was a thing such as a poultry plucker. And so we were like, will it pluck? And so we bought a poultry plucker on Amazon, (laughs) threw it in the basement, had a buddy come over with his fancy red camera, set up a lighting rig. And, you know, it's stupid and it's never going to go anywhere. Although you can check us out on on YouTube. Is it on YouTube? Yeah, but I'm not proud of the name, so I'm not going to plug it here. But I'll send it to you guys afterwards. (laughs) But like going to film school is great. You know, and a lot of people do that. But if you didn't go to film school these are all learnable things and these are learnable experiences and you can do them for very little money if you have a stupid idea and some friends who don't mind wasting a Saturday. (laughs) Also, I should just say, we did not pluck any live animals. Oh yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. I figured, but (laughs) no dead animals either. No, no animals were plucked at any point in time <laughs> for the making of these for videos. the making of these videos but that is a great way to learn i mean just to, you know just to get together with some friends and, and you know yeah shoot just, something. yeah start making stuff and figuring yeah. it out i mean that's talking to people they're like yeah i mean part of it's just making stuff so that you learn how it works there's a if it's there's a great i think it's ira glass and probably other people have said it yeah where he's like talking about writing and he's like you know you're gonna be bad at first yeah which is why you just have to keep doing it right and right. it's just, yeah, just if you want to make stuff, you just got to make stuff. Yeah, that's the only way to, it's the only way to figure it out is to actually do it. <laughs> you can plan as much as you want, but until you're actually doing it, then For sure. you can figure out all your skills. So what would you say were some challenges to your job that you maybe weren't expecting or that came up more often than you thought they would? You always want to put together the most compelling narrative. And collaborative processes are hard. And I think they're supposed to be hard. If they weren't hard, everyone would be doing it and making Oscar award winning films all the time. Like it's hard. And that's the beauty of it. It's the challenge of it. And I think the thing you always want to feel like you're able to, you're putting at the end of the day, when you get, when, when the lights are on and John is starting to read prompter that you feel like what you're rolling is doing the story justice and that you're doing, because a lot of the time also, you know, the show deals with some really heavy topics. And so um, it's always wanting to feel like the work that you did and the process that you put in place landed somewhere that um, you're doing service to the idea behind the the topic. So that's like kind of the heady, yeah. big challenge, I think. Do you have any moments from your career that are just a really favorite moment? Um, or like where you're like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for a living. Oh, sure. Well, as a production assistant at the Meredith Vieira show, got to work in 30 Rockefeller, um, oh, nice. which is amazing. Yeah. You're working in the hallway across from Jimmy Fallon. You know, it's it's historic. It's amazing. One day... 
uh, I was on the team helping produce the live animals episode. And it was my job to make sure that the animals got to the soundstage safely <laughs> and on time. Great. So they're coming in from rural Pennsylvania. They have a trailer. They have all the animals, a donkey, a miniature zebra, an alpaca. What? There was also a lizard and a bird, but I don't think those were there at the time. Okay. So they are parked out in the 50s uh, okay. on Lexington Avenue in, in New York, right outside of Rockefeller. And uh, some truck like nicks the side of the trailer. And so, the, but I was able to get the trailer down into the thing, into the basement of 30 Rock. But they, the police were called because there had been, you know, minor damage to the trailer. So then the, the driver of the truck is down in the basement with us with 30 Rock security and the police show up to take a record and then of what had happened. And then they opened the door for the animals to come out, but there weren't quite enough handlers, which I don't fully make sense. So the animals start kind of wandering about on their own oh while we try God. to get them <laughs> up a ramp. And meanwhile, the band that was, I don't know what band it was that was playing for Fallon that night was getting into their bus to like leave and videotaping us and laughing because it was a weird thing to be. Right. In totally. rock. And then the llamas and the apacas decided they didn't like the texture of the floor in the basement. So they just laid down and were refusing to move. So a bunch of teamsters <laughs> had to come with dollies and get the llamas and the alpaca on the dollies. <laughs> Oh, right. There was a camel. And so then they're wheeling the animals down the hallway to get them into the elevator. I'm pushing, trying to push a donkey's butt up a ramp to get them (laughs) to go down the thing to get to the elevator to go upstairs. And we finally get them in there. They put the camel in Meredith's dressing room because they thought it'd be funny if there's a camel in Meredith's dressing room. Camel proceeded to take a poop in Meredith's dressing room. Uh, (laughs) And so that was like, and that was the second show of the day. Oh, my God. We had done a morning show. So that was a moment. And yeah, look, if you, a good one. and if you want to learn television production, work in a daytime variety. You will yeah. learn how to do more different things and more insanity in one day than you'll ever get anywhere else. Oh my God. And then as far as the moments of, I can't believe I get to do this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a shorter story, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> What's crazy to me is, you know, getting to work and learn from John who obviously was such a, an important voice in the creation of, you know, this specific type of television yeah. and from, you know, from a technical end and then from an editorial end and from a comedic end, you know, I'll watch on the monitor during rehearsal or during taping. And if there's any new material that came out of rewrite or anything like that, if we can get John to laugh to me, that's yeah. kind of like, yeah, this is, this is fun. You know, we're, we're doing, meaningful work and if we can kind of get a chuckle out of him that's where i'm kind of like yeah this is this is a really cool place to be and then i mean also from a just a you know more society standpoint i think we never like to say overstate the value or impact of television it's television like we we tell stories whether they're that it, you can't go into it assuming that it is going to change the world because it is yeah. just television but it is always very rewarding when you see certain episodes uh, resonate and people expressing that they feel seen or people expressing that they're thinking about something in a different way. That is always incredible and meaningful to be able to see. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Those are both great stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got one more question for you, David, before we move on. Uh, and that question is, what advice do you have for people who want to get either into the television world or in the entertainment world in general? 
Yeah. So I, I listened to your uh, episode with Richard Rosenthal and oh, I yeah. think, I think it's the same advice. Just start doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the one thing I would say is, you know, if your dream is to work in late night, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Don't worry about it. If you get a job in daytime, take it. Like if you yeah. get a job as an NBC page, a CBS page, like whatever it is, it doesn't have to be the thing you're going to want to be in for your career because the reality is shows come and go. You're going to grow and you're going to be better. You're going to get smarter. You're going to know when you're ready for more and then you'll go and find the next thing. So I would say don't overthink where you enter. Just start doing and being kind and being good and smart and network and yeah you know that's how how you can make it happen let's get to our featured film today we're discussing the 2015 german satire black comedy look who's back it was written by david venand mizzy meyer timur vermish and it was directed by david venand it stars oliver masucci mm-hmm. thomas m copel and Mark Marvin Israel. So Susan, can you give us a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? Yeah, so this movie is about Adolf Hitler coming back to life in 2014. They don't they don't really explain how he came back. It just sort of like was a moment. But we also meet Fabian Swatsky. He's a TV producer. He gets fired right at the beginning of the movie, but he had just shot footage of some kids, kids playing soccer out in Germany. And in the background, he spots a man who looks like Hitler sort of rising up out of the shrubs behind them. So he finds that man. He thinks he's like, I guess, like a comedian or like a personality who's just playing Hitler um, and like doing a bit, but like one that he fully commits to where he just lives as Hitler And he takes him across the country. He shoots a bunch of footage. We eventually see Hitler get hired by a TV station um, to do a talk show. Also, within all this footage, the man playing Hitler, um, Oliver Masucci, it's sort of like in Borat where he interacts with real people who don't know necessarily that they're in a movie. And he gets these real reactions from Germany, Germans to Hitler, which is this movie is a classified as a comedy, but there's some like pretty scary moments in it. This movie is definitely um, also a horror film. Yeah, especially we'll near the end. Um, so yeah, we see all this unfold and there's this one TV producer, you see him change when he starts to realize who this man actually is. Yeah, so I guess we'll just start talking about it because I'm sure we'll discuss the ending. Oh so yeah, we gotta talk right about away, it, but, for sure. But yeah. before we get to that, so David, you chose this yeah. one for us to watch. Why did you choose Look Who's Back? <laughs> well... So the reason why I picked this film is because it directly speaks to the work uh, I do and the types yeah. of shows that I work on. Okay. Kind of something I said earlier, which is we seek to present and illustrate truthfulness. And that yeah. is the thing that can resonate and make something speak to a, to an audience. Mm-hmm. This film, I think did a fantastic job doing that both in the real images that they showed, but Mm -hmm. also in the satire and in their commentary. Yeah. And one of the specific things that, you know, I think is so brilliant about this film is this was in 2014 Mm -hmm. and the United States was about to undergo a pretty long period of conversations about the rise of Nazism, about hate speech, about 
the failure of media, cable news specifically, to adequately and responsibly handle unusual events. Mm -hmm. And I think that this film shows very clearly the 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 core issue with our media ecosystem today. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, networks don't care why people are watching. They only care that people are watching. Right. Yeah. And if you only focus on the numbers and you don't focus on anything below that, you can end up promoting yeah. things that you don't understand. You can help abetting and assisting uh, the elevation of individuals and ideas that you don't intentionally, that you're not doing intentionally, but can still yeah. be harmful. Yeah. And right. so that, that's why, you know, that's why I picked the film. Uh, mm-hmm. I know it's, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. I know it's, <laughs> it was, it's a little yeah. dense, but it's it, fantastic. It, it is a good, yeah. I mean, it is a good movie and like the points it makes are really good. The way they do it is really interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. And you know, it's sort of, it's sort of a, it, you, you said it, Susan, it's like Borat where, mm-hmm. you know, they have this character and they follow him around mm-hmm. and real people interact with them. And the number of people that, I mean, you, you know, a lot of people I think are assuming it's a, it's a joke, right? Yeah. But the way the film portrays it is so terrifying because the film is presented as though it is the actual yeah. Hitler who also doesn't understand why he's back in Germany. And, you know, you're actually seeing a lot of the film from his perspective, which is super interesting, but it's also terrifying because so many people, very few people stand up to him in this movie. Right. And so it's kind of, it's an extremely eye-opening perception of like how someone like Hitler can come to power, right? And to your point, how he, you know, David, how he his voice gets amplified. In addition to like the talk show, then at the end they start making a movie about this movie. Mm-hmm. That's sort of interesting, and sort of it's just everything sort of compiles on itself, and this guy starts getting actual power, and that's where the movie ends. It's like yeah. like this could also be classified as a horror movie. I mean, they make a joke about how his mustache is short because he had to wear a gas mask, mm-hmm. but that's actually true. Like, you know, it's like all these things, it's like, wow, that's, you know, this is an extremely well-thought-out film. 100%, and, and, and I think they did a really exemplary job, right? What does he go to first? He goes and he looks at the newspapers. Yeah. Because he understood and he understands media. Right. And then as soon as he was placed in front of a computer, the the understanding of the possibility of weaponizing these things. And I think the show did a great job showing how the ecosystem is all connected, right? Like Mm -hmm. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, cable, it's it's all the same beast. Uh, and they're all kind of coexisting and symbiotic and build off of one another and fuel an outrage-based economy. And someone with the understanding, like in the 20s and 30s, the only outlet were, you know, speeches and newspaper and maybe some radio. Like, we've just modernized. Like, people haven't changed. The ability Mm -hmm. to weaponize these systems haven't changed. The mediums mediums have updated. And I think it did a really great job of demonstrating that his that history nothing is new it's all repeated yeah yeah do you guys have a a scene that stands out to you as particularly either i'll say funny or horrifying and i i I mean i can start and (laughs) say uh the cooking show thing 
was funny to me when uh so hitler walks into a uh, hit, him, the hotel room yeah he walks yeah. in the hotel room with the with the documentary and fabian he turns on the tv doesn't realize it's a tv at first but they turn it on and all it is is like cooking shows and just crap you know just whatever reality tv or whatever's on and he's flipping through it and he freaks out and he talks about how you know Goebbels, which was of course his his media right hand guy you know would be so upset by what's on tv today because it's all just garbage um, and just watching Hitler react, one of the most evil people in history, react to to media today. To cooking shows, right? Yeah. But um, then the way he spins it later is just like, oh my gosh! Yeah. And then at the same time, horrifying, which is watching him walk into that political party office mm-hmm. and just like tearing them apart for not being strong enough. Right. It's like, oh wow! Like this is a very terrifying moment. But you can see why someone that's just that strong-willed, even though he's evil came convince people to like do what he says yeah now is this the first time you guys have had to talk about hitler on your podcast it, uh probably thankfully yes <laughs> it is. Uh, you're welcome <laughs> yeah appreciate it the way they i think the way they did this movie is really well done because it shows like everyone approaches him as just like they're not threatened by him they just see him as a novelty and they're enjoying right. their time with him and then you see him use that to like we said just but that's how he gets in and that's yeah, yeah i mean you're right it's just the same stuff he's just repeating himself i thought they did a really good job with that of like showing how he disarmed everyone pretty much right. and they just sound like oh what a funny what a funny guy playing this part and he's so committed to it and it's like but then he unveils like then really he unveils dark really dark stuff and then yeah. you see the producer be like oh no what have i done and it's too late he gets thrown in a that's when for me it like really turned into a horror movie he gets thrown into a asylum and he's just trapped in like then you see hitler drive off with that woman and i'm like right. oh my god like <laughs> i think it yeah. also it speaks to you know, as again, back to media critique, yeah. like our, our inability to distinguish between good and bad. Yeah. Even the best attempts to show depth in an interview, mm-hmm. typically, or to show depth or nuance in any conversation falls short. Yeah. And then you just kind of end up with what's on the surface. Right. And, and if you do that, you can end up elevating people and ideas and concepts without thought and mm-hmm. just they become recognizable, they become normal, they become uh, conversational. And if that happens, then if down the road, you actually learn the truth, it's very hard to unwind that from society. Mm -hmm. We're not good at doing that. It's interesting to critique a satire, right. critiquing media, right. when I also like to critique media, yeah. it's like a little bit of a circle we got going <laughs> yeah. on. For sure. But I, I say this like to, to cause it's a lot of critique on, mm-hmm. on, on news and on, yeah. on, you know, more traditional forms yeah. of media. Like I don't have the answers, mm-hmm. but I do think that if you kind of look at the patterns that we're doing now, and you yeah. look at this movie, like it just doesn't, it is not healthy. It is not right. good. It yeah. does not serve the purpose that it is supposed to yeah. in society. Yeah. A couple scenes since we were talking about scenes that stood out. One was the scene where the man who took over for her after she was fired, you see him once his ratings go down, he starts losing money. He's like, well, I guess we'll bring Hitler back. So, I mean, he's, he falls into the same trap where he's like, whatever it takes to make me succeed and make this succeed. Yeah. And then also everything surrounding what happened with the dog oh my gosh. is so accurate because it's 
it's like that's the one thing they won't tolerate is hurting a dog. That's the one I thing that is, broke the I think is, yeah. is true. I mean, that's how people tend to react now too. Yeah. A hundred percent. No, I agree. I think it like completely connects to just yeah. satire based in truthfulness mm-hmm. resonates harder. And you watch that and you're like, shit. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. would that would that would be the thing that did it. Right. Yep. I mean, if the scene for me, like I think it's hard that when he when he goes out for the first time on that talk show. Yeah. Mm. And if you understand how to get eyes on you, if you can understand like how the system works, and I don't think it's sophisticated, it is very easy to exploit. Mm. And that was exactly to me that that's all I think about in that moment. Yeah. Well, I think we have successfully (laughs) walked the tightrope of uh, talking about Hitler on the podcast. So thank you for that, David. I just want to say my backup, my backup, I don't know if you remember, was Wally. So it was Wally, yes. It was Wally. A different kind of social commentary. (laughs) (laughs) We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Jokes on You. In honor of Look Who's Back, we're going to see how well both of you know satirical films. So David and Susan, you'll be playing as a team. So here are the rules. I've given both of you a list of films that are satires. You will take turns describing the film's characters, plots, quotes, whatever you want to each other as quickly as you can, but you cannot use the name of the movie. You will have one minute to get your partner to guess as many as possible, and if you get five correct... Then David will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? There's some Life in the Credits merchandise, like a shirt or a mug, something like that. Very exciting. (laughs) Absolutely. So Stakes just went way up. (laughs) Super high. All right. Now, Susan, I'm going to start the time as soon as you give your first clue. Okay. So whenever you're ready. This movie uh, is about a guy who writes parody songs. Like, I think my baloney... Oh, I mean, Weird Al, the biopic of Weird Al. Yeah. I'll count it. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Flies through the sky. It's a a big metal object. Airplane? Yes. Okay. Two points. Um, uh, This is pretty much parody of Scream, but eventually a whole bunch of other horror films. Um, It's not clueless. No. So it's the parody of scream, but it's just like a general title for this genre of film too. And the guy, when he calls her, he says, do you like mm, when he's calling Sydney, the, the ghost face you guy? Can pass. Okay. A, a pass. Okay. Um, this is a Jordan Peele movie. It was like his first huge movie. Uh, yes. About uh, get out. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, vampires flight of the concords. Uh, oh, uh, what we do in the shadows. Yes. Yeah. One more. Um, uh, this is about a guy from Kazakhstan who comes. To, yeah. yeah, that's five in time. All right. We did it. Yay. That was close. You guys. That was um, the, the one was the minute. was scary movie, which is such an Uh-oh. obvious title that like when you try, like, it's honestly, a, I mean, yeah. I knew that I just it's been so long I since know. I've watched oh, scary movie. Yeah, I haven't seen those movies in forever. Well, well done, yeah. you guys. You I gotta guys- say, like, I feel like it would have been really bad if I hadn't gotten Get Out. That would have been really bad. I would have gotten, <laughs> got it. Got in trouble. It's so hard, though. Like, when you're in it, your brain just shuts off. <laughs> or you get <laughs> yeah. stuck on some word that you're like, I know it's not that, but now I can't think of anything else. So, yeah. yeah. yeah no worries. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the end of each episode, we do like to give our guests a chance to plug yeah. anything. So, David, is there anything that you would like to plug? Uh, I just encourage folks to check out what the, the problem with John Stewart. If you can 
figure out how to log in. Uh, your Apple ID, I don't know. It's one of your IDs. It might work. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're really <laughs> proud of what we've been putting together. And yeah, um, yeah check it out. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, today, this Kate. was it's really been fun. an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you both. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I just want to say my backup, my backup, I don't know if you remember, was Wally. So it was Wally, I, yes. It was Wally. A different kind of social oh commentary. <laughs>